You're listening to a sermon from First Family Church. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. You are in for a treat today. Not only just in the beginning, it was so good, but I think you'll just really enjoy what God is going to do in our presence this morning. You know, that song says well what we say when we obey the Lord in the two ordinances of the New Testament church. The song says, I have no other boast than Christ, that he's my life. And so when we observe the two ordinances of the New Testament church, they are baptism and communion, both of those are saying those things, that Christ is all we need and all we have. And so both in the, in the way we go about them, both in their message and their in their method, they shout that, that Christ is central and all we need and all we have. I want to spend two weeks helping you understand more about that in a simple two-week series called The Ordinances of the Church. This week we'll talk about baptism, then we'll baptize some people, we'll help them obey that ordinance. Next week we'll look deeper into communion. Now you'll notice that in this simple two-week series, we're not calling it the sacraments of the church, correct? Instead, it's called what? The, the ordinances of the church. The word simply means commands. And so we believe as a church that Christ left commands that we should follow until he comes. In fact, in both ordinance and both baptism and communion, that phrase and that implication is in both of those that we're to do this until he comes. And so those commands are our ordinances. We don't believe, as Roman Catholics do, in seven sacraments, nor do we believe, as they believe, and they say this quote, that they're necessary for salvation. In fact, they would say that's why they're called sacraments, because they are the avenue of grace. That's what sacrament means. But we would hold to this truth. That the avenue of grace is actually a person, Jesus Christ. John 1.17 says this, that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So scripture is clear that the avenue of grace is not a ritual or a ceremonial rite. It's a person. His name is Christ. And he left us ordinances, two of those, baptism and communion. So understand when this title is significant as well. We're a church that believes in ordinances and not sacraments. That being said, let me explain to you. I do believe at times that the ordinances, and watch this, hear what I am saying, not what I'm not saying. The ordinances have a sacramental effect in regards to sanctifying grace. Okay? I don't believe that the ordinances are salvific that they save us or that they're the avenue of grace, but I do believe that in some way, and I think there's some mystery to this, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, participate in baptism, whether we're watching and rejoicing with someone who's obeying in that or we're participating, let's say, weekly in the the communion, there's there's an experience of God's grace that is sanctifying, that if we didn't do those ordinances, we wouldn't experience that grace at that time. I mean, can we just be extremely transparent and frank? Many of you, most of us, come in every single week with burdens on our backs. Things are strapped to us and velcroed to us that we wear from the week before. 
Are you there sometimes? Sure you are. It could be a relationship. It could be a situation. It could be a a set of bad news or a circumstance, a financial downturn. And often in communion, you realize that even though the bad news you got last week is not that great, your soul is secure by Christ and heaven's your home and God's got you in the palm of his hand and nothing can take you from that. And suddenly the grace of that remembered brings a kind of peace, doesn't it? It's, it's grace that sanctifies you through an ordinance. Or you watch someone get baptized and you remember when God saved you and, bab- and you were baptized and, and that memory, like, you know what? Yeah, man, I'm so glad God found me and pursued me and saved me. And you experience that, that sanctifying grace through the ordinance. So I want to be careful here not to say in any way that, that ordinances save us. We don't have those as sacraments. But I do think there is something going on in the ordinances that may not be fully understood as we experience God's grace in a sanctifying way when we remember him in communion baptism. So we're going to spend two weeks diving into these two ordinances, baptism and communion. This week, it's baptism. So take your Bibles and locate, if you would, the verse that records for us the largest amount of people being baptized at one time in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Will you find that in your Bibles? And while you're locating that, let me just walk you through some fast facts about baptism, all right? We'll get to Acts 2.41 in a moment. I want to just kind of lay these baptism fast facts out to you. There's five of them because I think this will help us in maybe more of a research kind of way. These are not things that I made up. These aren't Todd's tips. These aren't uh, suggestions. I'm just going to kind of lay out for you in a research fashion. Here's things the Bible clearly um, portrays and presents, all right? You can kind of take them and then process them as you need to. This may stir some conviction in some of you. I think that'd be really good. I think that'd be really helpful. Uh, It may stir some confirmation in some of you. That's great. But here's some things the Bible lays out as fact that we're not to argue about. We can just say, oh, okay. And then we got to process that. Here's five quick baptism fast facts. That in the Bible, in Scripture, baptism is, is given or portrayed or illustrated by example, command, and analogy. So at least in a trifecta of ways... Baptism is clearly a habit of the New Testament church. We know that Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, he went into the water, came up out of the water, and then the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Mark 1, 9 through 11 pictures and shows Jesus by example being baptized. Several of the disciples as well. By command, Matthew 28, 19, we're told to make disciples. And the very next word is the phrase, baptizing them. And we're to do this until the end of the age. He's with us in order to do this. So here's the idea of the ordinance again. And it's also by analogy. In other words, the word baptism is used in many of the epistles. Romans 6, 3, and 4. Um, Colossians, I think, 1 or 2, maybe 10 through 12. Galatians 3, 27. The word baptism is used to show that we are baptized into Christ. So it pictures there not only the Holy Spirit's baptism of us into the body of Christ, but also our physical baptism that shows that. So in at least three ways, baptism is a consistent thread in the New Testament. Here's four more facts for you. No biblical record of infant or pre-conversion baptism is ever found in the Bible. So a lot of times we say infant baptism, uh, that would be a pre-conversion baptism. But the truth is there's no instance of an adult 
or anyone pre-conversion getting baptized, which means in the Bible, the pattern is always, 100% of the time, conversion, then immersion, every time. Just some facts for you to consider. There's no biblical record of delay in the Bible. This is the one that I think is most striking for the American church. The American church has kind of formulated a a sense of like you can get saved, God can save you, you can get regenerated, converted, you can experience God's amazing salvation, but then you can kind of wait around as long as you want until you're ready to get baptized. And that, that pattern is nowhere in the Bible. In fact, it's not that we're left without a pattern. The pattern in the Bible is conversion, and then, I'll use this word immediate, it is a relative term, but the Bible's pattern is conversion, baptism, really close. Now, here's what I didn't say. I didn't say that, it's, that you should rush someone into the waters of baptism before they're sure they're saved. I didn't say that. Right, right church? You with me? So if we're confirming something with someone, if we're spending weeks and months just making sure they're genuinely born again, like one of our children, maybe someone we've established a relationship with and we're working with that, that's a different story. But if there's been genuine conversion, confidence that God by His grace has saved me, and then we feel like, well, I'm just going to wait until I'm ready. I'm a little scared of water. Or I'm not sure what people think. Or I just, I would actually say to you, at some point that becomes disobedience. Because baptism is not an option, it's a command. And in the Bible, the pattern is 100% of the time without delay. So just process that thing through it. I'll leave you in the Holy Spirit with it. There's no biblical record of sprinkling in the Bible. And baptism in the Bible is a sign of new covenant circumcision. Now here's what I just didn't say in the fifth fast fact. I didn't say that baptism is new covenant circumcision. And perhaps a better word to be inserted here, new covenant spiritual circumcision. Can we say that? Amen. All right, good. I know we have kids in the room, so I want to be just a real um, PG here. But in the Old Testament, circumcision physically was a sign they belonged to God's people. And so some folks have said... I don't think this is a sin to say this. I would disagree with it. But they would just say, well, baptism is the new circumcision. But that's actually not true, I don't think. Circumcision, according to Colossians 1, 10 through 12, and Romans 2, I believe it's verse 29, is actually the act of God where he cuts away the deadness of our heart and regenerates and saves us. Salvation is actually the new spiritual circumcision. And baptism is a sign of that. Does that make sense? So there are those who disagree with that, and we'll be friends, and we'll talk in heaven, no problem. But I think, the, personally, I don't think the Bible portrays baptism as the new covenant spiritual circumcision. This isn't what we do uh, to replace circumcision. I think salvation is what God has done to mark his people out, and then we are baptized as a sign of God's spiritual circumcision of our hearts. So some, fa- some fast facts for you. Process them. Maybe just have a picture of this. Write them down. Let those kind of, you know, circulate in your brain as we look at this singular verse that describes the moment when 3,000 people were baptized. Okay? We're going to look at this together. We'll do it through our lab. So you may want to mark in your Bibles if you want to kind of follow along with me. I think it's a very succinct verse. And by the way, I was really pumped that I could speak from one verse today. And for the last, what, seven or eight weeks, we've been covering multiple chapters. You know, it's been good to drown in that way. I mean, it's, it's delightful. But man, for a few weeks, I'm like, man, one single verse? This will be great today. You know, I'm looking forward to this. 
And this verse does succinctly, and in some ways, it, it just lays out for us really what baptism is. It's Acts 2.41. I'll kind of show you how I marked it in my Bible. You may want to do the same. It will kind of make some things clear for you. Now, because it's verse 41, those are man-made, of course, inserted. He's just saying to us that this verse follows a, a pretty long narrative in which, Peter, in which Peter was preaching when the church began. This is the very first official church sermon. Mainly Jews were listening, but there were other folks from every nation on the earth. The name of this event is called Pentecost. And so here Peter's preaching. The Holy Spirit is empowering people. He's also saving many people. He preaches about Christ being the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Christ is the Messiah. His name was Jesus. He did die and he did rise again. And you should believe in Jesus as the only way to be saved. And he says, do this and save yourselves. That's what Peter actually says. In other words, not save yourselves, but believe in Christ. And by doing this, save yourselves from this wicked generation. Don't follow the path of those who don't believe. Follow Christ and believe. Here's the response of people to that message. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Could you read that with me? Here we go. Ready? So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Three parts of the verse. Briefly, I would say it's the first part is those who received his word were baptized. In a word, that's just conversion. So you want to mark that. They received his word. It means to accept. It means to, uh, to put your feet on it. To stand on it. What did they receive? They received his word, Peter's message. And his message was the gospel. It was all about Jesus. That he was God's fulfillment of every bit of the Old Testament promises. He did die, he did uh, rise again, and he could be trusted and believed in as the only means of being right with God. The next part of the verse seems to be the phrase, we're baptized. Let's put by this word, immersion. Can we do that? Say, Todd, why did you put immersion by baptized? Well, Baptism is one of those words that we don't translate from the original language. It's one of those words that we transliterate from the original language. In other words, the Greek word for baptize, watch this, I'll be really smart to you, is baptizo. So they just took English letters and put them in place of Greek letters, and they said, okay, the English word for baptizo is baptize. It literally means to dip. So I'm going to speak to you linguistically. There's nothing within the connotation of the actual Greek word baptizo, transliterated baptized, that means to sprinkle at all. I mean, you, no, no New Testament first century person would have ever used the word baptizo to talk about putting salt on something. They would have used it to talk about dipping your nuggets in barbecue sauce. So when we had, all our kids were home, they were little, we would go to McDonald's on Wednesday night. This is before it was against the clean police to go there and they'd make fun of you on Facebook. Uh, this is when you could go to McDonald's and you know, you'd be okay. We'd buy Happy Meals for $1.99. We'd go there, we'd get two or three of them and we'd get nuggets and the kids would always get barbecue sauce or ketchup and what, here's what we'd do. We'd take the nugget and we'd do what? We'd dip it in the sauce. We didn't take the sauce or the ranch and do this. 
we would take the nugget and dip it. And you only bite the part that's got the sauce on it. Why? Because you've got to dip what's left, too. So you dip that next and eat that. We baptize our nuggets. That's what the word means. So this verse, in, in no uncertain terms, says this. Those who accepted the truth about Jesus were dipped. Now, in this case, he's referring to water. And then the last phrase, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a very interesting phrase because it ties into this idea of conversion, immersion. Let's put this word distinction. I could have put the word addition. But I think something deeper here is going on than just addition. I'm going to be very transparent with you. And this is where I would part ways from most Baptist people. I think there's something far deeper here than just addition. These folks didn't say, oh, well, I, I got saved. I'm going to get immersed so that I can join First Baptist Jerusalem. That wasn't in their thinking. Here's what was in their thinking. If you read the context, they're realizing that their public immersion in following the example of Jesus and being dipped into the water and brought up out of the water marked them out as distinctively God's people. They weren't of the former crowd anymore. They weren't part of what people would call the crooked generation. They were a different breed of people now. They were saved by God. So I think personally, this phrase speaks to something larger than just church membership. I think it speaks to a distinctive identification with the body of Christ as a whole. Now, is it wrong if someone says, well, in our church, we believe you have to be baptized to join it. We believe that's how you're added. I don't think it's wrong, nor a sin. At First Family, we don't hold to that view, and that's not real baptistic. Did you know that? We believe that to join God's church, you have to profess genuine conversion. Upon that, we would say this. You're then baptized as your first step of discipleship, not your last step of membership. Again, this is somewhat of an open-handed thing. I have really close friends outside of our church, and I have really close friends inside our church. We see this differently. We get along great. We never come to blows over it. We don't fight about it. But I think the church, at least at First Family, our goal is to mirror the heart of God. And how does God add people to his family? By saving them. And then he grows them from baptism forward. We try to mirror that. So if you can give honest, genuine profession of faith, you can join this church. We'll ask you also if you're willing to grow and you're willing to be committed to unity. Those are questions we'll ask you. We'll also ask you, are you have you been baptized? And if you were to say no, we would say, you mean not yet? <laughs> because baptism is a command and we we're going to push you not to delay that obedience, but to obey the Lord because it's part of our discipleship. I would say to you personally, it's their first step of discipleship. So when it says here they were added that day, what were they added to? Yes, they were added to that church, yes. But there was something deeper here than just like, put me on the roll. Add me to the database. What was going on was a marked difference in who they belonged to and how they behaved. I think distinction is the best word to describe this sudden, like, wow, I'm genuinely converted. I accept the message. I've been immersed like Jesus was. I'm different I'm changed. There's something markedly um, radical about me now. I belong to this group of people known as God's people. Does that make sense? 
So please, if we disagree on that, please don't hear this as me condemning your view. I think there's some, rope, there's some room here. I would say this in my defense. I rarely do this in church. But in my defense of this view, if you go down to Acts 2.47, you'll find the same word added. But this time it says this. The Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being, and the next word is what? Saved. It doesn't say baptized. So you have to make a choice. When it comes to adding to the church, universally or locally, how does God do that? I believe the best answer and the most biblical answer is through salvation. When you're baptized, you are marking yourself out as identifying with that large group or the local group. I just personally, and I think currently our church and our elders would say, we're not going to make that a hoop for membership. We're going to make it a step of discipleship. Make sense? So what you see here are really conversion, immersion, and distinction in the singular verse that describes the one time in the New Testament in which 3,000 people were baptized. It's recorded that way. Can you jot down two thoughts that I think would help us kind of put a handle on this? First of all, baptism must be then an individual's public act after conversion. We see this in the first phrase. Baptism is an individual's public act after conversion. It's also a church's public act of distinction. So, to kind of see how I got there, what is sandwiched between conversion and distinction? Say it with me. The word in red? Immersion or baptism. So it's the individual's public act of, of um, after conversion. I'm getting baptized. And it's the church's. Something happened to these people, right? The word added there is a, is a passive verb. Something happened to these people that showed they were part of something. So it's an individual's public act after conversion. It's a church's public act of distinction. What says both of those things? Being baptized, obeying that ordinance. I hope you see the flow here. We have some teenagers in the room. We have some young children. If you just want to understand baptism's flow, just these three words will do it. Conversion, immersion, distinction. Baptism shows every one of those. And that is the consistent, unified, biblical pattern. You say, Todd, what does this point to? Let's add one more word, can we? Because I want to make sure we get this before we move on. This points to the gospel every time. Watch. Gospel conversion. Because what message are we believing and receiving? The one about Christ. Correct, church? That he was... He lived, he, he died, he was buried, he rose again. It's the word about Christ that we're believing, the good news that he has come and has paid our debt. So it's gospel conversion. It's also gospel immersion. Let's see if I can squeeze this word in here. We're being baptized just like Christ. You see, that even the motion of baptism matters. Christ was crucified, buried, and raised. When you're baptized, watch this, you're crucified, buried, and raised. You're symbolizing the life and death and resurrection of Christ. It's a gospel immersion even. And then our distinction, I would say it's a gospel distinction. You're being added to what? You're being added to a family of believers, universally and locally, whose head is Christ Jesus. So here's what that means for you. Listen very carefully and hope your toes are ready for this. That You don't call the shots. There's a new commander. He's not your consultant. He's King Jesus. That's the family we belong to. He's our head. 
Baptism says that. I'm following Jesus. So really, baptism says this. Gospel conversion has happened. Gospel distinction is happening. And I picture that by gospel immersion. So let's put this into a single sentence, can we? If you were to try to tie all this together, how would you describe a single verse, Acts 2.41, the three things we see there? What's it saying to us, Todd? Let me show it to you in a single sentence. Here's our take-home truth for today. And then we'll illustrate this through a story. We'll go to the single sentence here when they get to it, and we'll show this to you. The take-home truth. Baptism pictures, promotes, and preserves the gospel by publicly identifying Christ's people with God and one another, marking us as distinct from the world. When I say it preserves the gospel, that doesn't mean that we keep the gospel intact. God does that. But it does say this, that we are not allowing, while it's in our possession, while we're stewarding it in this generation, we're not going to let it slip away from its biblical moorings. So we're saying, we're going to, every time we baptize, we're going to realize, man, it's all about Christ's work. We're going to just stay focused on him. So that's why we say the word preserve. And baptism does every one of these things. It pictures, it promotes, and it preserves the gospel by identifying Christ's people with God and one another. In fact, we say this often, that baptism is when God adds one to many. There's many of you, and he's going to add one to it through baptism. He's going to say, my family's now got another one. In communion, we'll say this, it's many to one. We come together to remember the Lord's death, and we do it in unity. So baptism is one to many. Communion is many to one. We'll talk more about that next week. This is simply what baptism, it's the ordinance of baptism, is all about in the Bible from a single verse here in Acts 2.41. I hope you'll see the flow, the progression, and hope you'll see how they point to Christ in the gospel. Can I just say this to you, that baptism is designed to be a help and not a hurdle? It's one of those things that I think really um, can catapult spiritual growth. That's why I think it's first. It's an obedience factor. And we experience some sanctifying grace in those moments when we obey the Lord. It's definitely a help, not a hurdle. And it's the first step, not the last step. One thing I've been praying all week is this. That as people have heard this message, they would say, wow, I've, I've not been baptized for reasons that shouldn't be reasons, and I should get baptized. And I'm praying that even today you'll come and just say, confess Christ. If you've been saved before, you'll be able to profess that, got genuine conversion. You'll get baptized today and we're done. Maybe you weren't planning to, but you should. Why delay is what I've been saying for years. Why delay? Just get baptized. And in fact, we have a guy coming in a few minutes. He was at 830. He saw me between the services. He said, Todd, I'll be back about 1130. I'll come in the side. I'll sit down. Baptize me at 10.30, would you? I said, I'd be glad to. He's going to join the folks who are getting baptized here already. If you're in that crowd after the service, just come see me. Gospel conversion, if it's happened, how about gospel immersion immediately? Let's just do it. To mark you out as distinct for the gospel. It may be though that someone's here listening and saying, Todd, I never knew that baptism had to follow genuine conversion. I've never really been saved. I've never really received the word. I've never accepted the message. But today, man, if that's what it means to be saved, that you accept the fact that Christ is all, count me in. Now, I realize for some of you that can be hard because you may be thinking, well, Todd, everybody thinks I'm saved already. Or people know me here. Won't that be kind of shocking? It might be, but it'd be well worth it. And nobody would know that better than the man who's going to talk to you next. 
He's going to get baptized in a few moments. He'll be the first guy we baptize. But you're probably thinking to yourself, well, my, when I see him get baptized, I thought he was already saved, and so did he. Until about, oh, 10 or 11 months ago. So as a way to show you that, that baptism really matters, I want you to hear from Kevin Nickel for a bit. Kevin, will you and Kathleen join me for a few minutes on the platform? And can we just kind of share your story together? I'll ask you a few questions. This is Kevin and Kathleen Nickel. Kevin used to serve as a deacon here. Um, and then God just brought to completion some work that he was doing in his life. And I think it's time to bring you in the loop on that. I want to say this very transparently to you. Kevin's baptism is not more important than Andrew's, uh, who's getting baptized in a little bit. Um, Brandon's, Christina's, and there's one more. I'm looking for a hand. I got the list there in front of me. There's one more. It's not more important than their baptisms, okay? I do think sharing his story right now might need more explanation, though. Okay? So we're going to take some time to do that, and then you'll hear their stories as well. But I think this story might resonate with many of you here who perhaps are wondering, like, man, what did I learn today from a sermon on baptism? I thought I had that taken care of. I think Kevin may have thought that too. And I want them to hear instead God's wonderful grace in your life to bring you to, to realization of your true condition and then we'll baptize you to mark you out as distinct. Amen. So let me join you. And you're safe here. It's your family. Amen, church? Um, Kevin, take us back to a day when uh, you were at your rental home and you knew that um, and, and it's not really about me, I don't mean to say that, but like, you know, you had to call me, Kathleen had said that to you, because you had to confess, you had to, in other words, you had to get something on my radar, like, hey, Todd, I, I've got to come clean on some stuff, because God was doing something in your heart for a number of months. Take us back to that day, and maybe what preceded it, to, to kind of catch these folks up to speed a little bit. Sure. Um, what, what led me to that day was who I was, and who I was for most all of my life was a man who um, buried sin and hid it and wasn't going to let anybody know about it. Um, you know, I grew up going to church, going to Sunday school and participating in Christmas programs and hearing the stories and, and knowing them. And I thought... You know, that's what it was about. Um, Also at a young age, I was exposed to pornography. And instead of um, going to someone Mm. and telling them what I had come across, um, I hid and I ran and I lived in secret. Um, that, that's a sin that is hard to throw out there because it's a secret sin. It's a sexual sin, and um, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, made me uncomfortable, and that's why I hid. And I was determined that um, no one was ever going to know that about me. Less than a year ago, no one was ever going to know that about me. And... Um, what happened was um, when I took that in at a young age, I opened a door mm. to Satan to come into my heart, into my life, and he took root. 
that sin took root in my life and uh, took over my life. Um, I was not uh, a good person when I was young. I was taking stuff in. But I started to pretend because image meant a lot to me. Outward appearances meant a lot. Uh, I didn't want people to know who I was, so I would pretend that I had what I needed because I went to church and I heard the stories and I believed them. Uh, And then I would perform. Mm. So I lived a life of pretending and performing. Someone... Wow. To be someone that I wasn't. Hey, so, let's just insert this here. That's really what religion does best. Is that okay to say? I mean, mm-hmm. when there's not a relationship with Christ, religion is a great platform to perform, isn't it? Because you look great all the time. Yeah. So you, you kind of jumped into full religion, looking mm-hmm. really good, yet hiding and holding on to the sin that you didn't want to let go of. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just going to set these down. Not going to use them. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was it was a performance based life. Hmm. So uh, now I'm getting older, and um, I'm starting to date, and and um, you know I, I was yeah it was it was not good. So uh, one day, this woman comes into my life. And I'm still holding on to these secrets. She knows nothing about this in my life. And uh, I didn't want to tell her because I was afraid. I knew what would happen. She would turn and run, you know. She, um, she's a godly woman. She always has been. She was a, a woman of faith at a young age. Uh, she had a great example. And she's sitting here. Um, and uh, I, I won't do that again. I won't turn and look. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so we get married, and we didn't talk about any of this stuff. I was not going to talk about my past. But this sin in my life became a deeper hmm. and a wider and a darker hole. Wow. So fast forward through 31 years of marriage. My wife does not know who I am. I have not told her. And she doesn't even know this. I mean, she's not aware of any of this. She's not aware of any of this. So that, that, um, that sin that became deeper and darker and that gateway of, of pornography into my life led to some infidelity. And I was unfaithful to my wife several years ago. And so, okay, the hole just got deeper and it got darker. And I thought, I'm taking this to my grave. I'll deal with God. That one final conversation that I have. And in my mind, Satan had convinced me that I was going to be able to have that conversation. Hmm. That one last conversation. And see, I had always asked for forgiveness. I always asked God to forgive me of my sin. But I had never repented of my sin. I kept returning to it. So, can we just pause there for a minute? And yeah. It's interesting. You, you talk about just saying words then, really, right? Mm-hmm. Just trying to maybe salve your conscience. Well, I said those words. But there was no heart change, right. no repentance. Right. 
And God's opinion of you, you told me this before, God's opinion of you mattered secondarily at best, right? You were more concerned about what others thought of you yes. than what God actually said of you, right? Yes, yes. That changed at some point, didn't it? Yeah, so um, to answer your question, what led me to call you? <laughs> uh, in January, you started preaching out of 1 Samuel. And I started listening. And... One of the first sermons, you, you said, um, there are no mistakes. God's timing is never too late. It's never too early. It's right on time, and he shows up. And you said, our life is lived at an intersection. It's, um, I think it's like my situation and where God's at, and it's always intersecting. And I'm sorry, I don't have that down. But um, what happened was, uh, God unplugged my ears, and I started hearing His Word. His it Word. It wasn't really me, but God's His Word. Word. Yeah. And every Sunday, um, you were packing those sermons with a lot of punches, and they were hitting me left and right. And the conviction started pressing in against me. So mind you, um, my wife knows nothing of who I am. And I'm starting to hear this. And God's, well, before January, I'm sitting in my office, and I'm, and I'm crying out to God, and, and maybe some of you have, have had this before in your life at times. But I literally looked out my window in my office, and I said, God, where are you? Where are you? I don't see you. I don't hear you. I don't feel you. Is this all there is? Because I'm miserable. Is this all there is to my life? And then January hit, and I started hearing. You know, he makes the deaf to hear mm. and the blind to see. And he started, the scales started coming off of my eyes, and I started to see things. And um, I was being convicted. There was spiritual mm. warfare happening in my chest cavity. I was physically affected. I would come to church. <laughs> this is funny. I, I, it is now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Forgive me. You're right. I, I would come to church under such heavy conviction. And physically, I was being affected. Um, my blood pressure was, was uh, high. Um, I couldn't focus. I, I couldn't get things done during the day. I, I couldn't concentrate. And um, I was sweating. I mean, I was just pitting out. I, I was sweating profusely. You would sometimes have to go back home to change shirts before we come to church just yeah. because yeah. it was so visible, you said. Yeah, well, to me it was. But, you know, I'm wearing black today, and I always, you know, I didn't <laughs> want people to see me sweating. You know, I mean, that was, it was embarrassing, but I knew what was going on. So She here, thought it was something physical, didn't she? She thought it was physical like medical because thing. of my blood pressure and, and things like that. And um, I'm thinking, oh, man, i got to come clean, you know. Mm, God this is just is really God squeezing you. Squeezing me, putting me in the corner. And, and he was relentlessly pursuing me. And he wasn't backing off this time. And I knew that because I was hearing the word. It was the word of God that was convicting me. And um, so finally, I, there was one day... Um, I had to come to church to usher. I was, I was serving in the church and mm -hmm. leading, and um, 
I was on my way to church, and this was the second set of clothes I'd put on that morning. <laughs> and um, um, I had sweat through them. And I came walk, walking into the church, and don't believe for a second that God doesn't use people without them even knowing it to convict and press in against you. God can do that. And God was using people in this church to do exactly that. I'd walk through these doors, and I'd look at somebody, and I could swear they knew exactly what I had done, where I'd been, and what I was entertaining in my life. And there was no one that knew, because I hadn't told anyone at that point. So uh, I walk in, and uh, I told RJ. I said, RJ, I said, man, I, I shouldn't be here. I said, I don't feel good. I had the cold chills, and I was soaked. Hmm. And he said, get out of here. And I didn't have to ask him a second time. I left. I could not stay because the, the spiritual warfare of good and evil was so um, strong in me. I went home, and um, as hard as it was for me to sit under your that teaching at that time, I knew it was exactly what I needed to hear, and I wanted to hear it. Uh, so I went home, and I listened to it online. Mm -hmm. I didn't miss anything. Um, but what happened was, um, through that conviction, I just felt this intense heat, and it was like a wall of fire in my life. And I knew if I was going to come clean, I had to pierce through that wall of fire. Mm. And I could not do it. Um, so I always was kind of um, interested in how people would say, you know, here's a priority in my life. Here's God. Here's my spouse. Here's my kids. And here's all this other stuff that I pursue in life. Uh, I could never get that order right. God was always after my family. And even though my life didn't portray that I loved my family and that they were important to me, they were. So God was pressing in against me, and he broke me. He mm -hmm. finally, I finally gave in. <laughs> he was relentlessly pursuing me, and he brought me to my knees, and he says, Kevin, he says, do you trust me? The end of February, you preached a message about God saving us from God himself. Mm. Yeah, amen. And in that message, you talked about how our sin grieves the heart of God. And mind you, my ears are unplugged. I'm listening, and I'm hearing these things now. And um, I, I thought of my sin, and I thought, oh, my goodness, my life has grieved the heart of God. No one knows about this. And I had at that time talked to one, one man, one person in this church that knew a little bit about what I was dealing with. And he would speak truth into my life, and he would speak encouragement into my life. And he says, Kevin, he says, can I give you some hope? He said, there is grace on the other side of that wall of flames that you're seeing and that you're feeling. 
Amen. There's grace and there's mercy and it's abundant and it's for you and it's for all of us that repent. So that was encouragement. Mm -hmm. And um, I thank him for sharing and, and encouraging me. God broke me. And I finally said, God, you know what? At all cost, I don't care what it costs me. And at this time, my wife didn't know a thing. But I had come to grips with God, and I knew that he needed to be Lord of my life, and he needed to be on the throne. And I knew that it could cost me the very thing that was dearest to me, and that was my wife and my kids. Because I didn't know how they were going to respond when I started burying my soul and telling them who I was. Um, so that happened. Uh, that's what led me to that. And God pressed in and, and, and was convicting. And so um, shortly after that, God gave me the strength to confide in my wife and to share with her um, who I was. I bet your world, in understatement to say it, turned upside down that day, didn't it? Pretty much. <laughs> um, and I'm going to read my, my <laughs> thing because I, it just goes better that way. Um, I realized right away in our marriage that there was a lot I didn't know about Kevin and that he had kept some things from me. But I felt like we worked through a lot, and I felt happy in my marriage. It was a marriage of ups and downs that I considered normal. But when we moved to Ankeny in 2000, after 14 years of marriage, we were not in agreement, and I made the move reluctantly. It felt like Kevin had made a decision on his own against my wishes, and we were never really together again as a unified team. And there were still good times in our family and marriage, but I began to build walls around my heart in response to feeling rejected. I began to suspect wrong motives for things and felt insignificant to him. I poured myself into our kids and enjoyed that part of my life very much. I always had felt that Kevin couldn't be consistent in leading our family spiritually, even though he tried, and at this point I felt like he quit trying. Also a constant struggle for Kevin was anxiety and negative thinking, which seemed to go hand in hand with never being content. I didn't know anything about the secret sin in his life, but because of the nature of it, a part of me died, and I didn't understand any of it. I felt guilty a lot and like I was not a good wife. It was incredibly difficult when our kids left home, and I begged God to help me to love and respect my husband. I saw evidence that Kevin was trying harder to have a better marriage, and for the last two or three years, God was working in me to help me love and respect him again. When he finally opened up about the secret sin in his life, of course, I was shocked and brokenhearted. Mm. It's still very difficult, and we are still working through it. But the change I've seen in my husband has been dramatic. Amen. It feels like I have the husband I always wanted. He truly is a new man, and God has helped me to forgive him and walk in forgiveness. I'm rejoicing wow. with him over his newfound freedom and peace. God is still in the miracle-working business, and we are living proof. Amen. There are a thousand chapters of this story that we can't talk about today, but there's so much here. You mentioned the word change, Kathleen. Um, and Kevin, I mean, this is something that you've shared, is that you, you feel like 
there's not just, you, you're not doing something on the outside anymore. Like there's something internally that, that's different now. And you've even said this, you've said this, like a new lens. Just comment for a moment on that, then I want to ask you. Then just answer this, like what prompted you to say to him, like, Kevin, something bigger happened than, than just turning over a new leaf. I mean, walk us through that a little bit, would you? Um, so when I, when I started talking to Kathleen and we started working through um, a lot of this, um, you know, my mind was, was so scattered because there was so much there to uncover and, and walk through. But um, I had noticed that a lot of the, as hard and as difficult uh, as this journey is, and um, I had noticed that my fear and anxiety mm. and shame was gone. It wasn't there. My trust in God and what he was giving us to start putting the pieces together was um, overwhelming. And, and it's like my appetite just changed. Um, Amen. You know, when God, he, he took that sin and, and it's gone. Praise the Lord. It, it's gone. It's been broken. Mm. And with that, a new appetite has come. And, and we're reading the word and we're studying the word and we're praying and, and talking together. I mean, we're talking about stuff that we never talked about for 32 years of being involved in each other's lives. Um, but the appetite was gone. And then um, I, it just this is the best way I can say it uh, because, you know, God talks about uh, giving sight to the blind. He's talking about spiritual uh, appetite there. And it's like the lenses. Uh, I'm looking at life through a whole set set a different set of lenses. I see things so differently than what I did before. Mm. It's like I said, I mentioned earlier, the scales have just come off. So, you know, you're processing a lot of things, obviously, (laughs) as many of you might be doing right now. But um, through that, we're reading the Word, and and I'll let you take over here what, what we kind of uncovered. Over the course of several months this year, Kevin opened up about the secret sins in his life and even his life before we met, which he would never talk about before, and it gave me a more realistic picture of who he was. I was reading Galatians 5, and verses 19 through 21 just shocked me. It was a description of the works of the flesh, and much of it described who my husband was. Verse 21 ends with a warning that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I showed Kevin the passage and and said, if you had died, would you have gone to heaven? And we both just looked at each other and knew that according to scripture, he Mm -hmm. wouldn't have. He had never repented. But the change in him was so dramatic that I know he's a new creation now. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. You know, theologically, what that is is like conviction. And then suddenly your ears are open. It's regeneration. And then it's like conversion, justification, all these. We see it happen in a millisecond. But what you're describing is an actual moment when God came into your life and freed you from your sin. Amen. You went from religion to relationship. Yeah, yeah. And part of that process, uh, I mean, it, it, it happened over a period of time. Not the process of being saved. But 
of me realizing that that's what happened. Yeah, amen. Okay, because um, there's this thing in our life called pride, and it's a horrible <laughs> sin. Yeah. But I was, I was, you know, I was participating in church leadership. I was a lighthouse leader. I, you know, we hosted lighthouse, and and many in here sat in the in that lighthouse over those years, and um, so I think. I can best say it this way. Satan was fogging my memory and my mind. And my he didn't want me to know sure, you're right. that God had just saved me. And then you have pride as part of that sin nature. You know, I was, I'm like, yeah, I, was, I had what I needed. I was saved. Remember, that's my whole life. You know, I had, I had enough. And, um, you know, I didn't. Amen. God saved me, and he needed to, to take that pride out of the way, and I couldn't let what others were going to think of me to keep me from realizing I just got saved. I'm just transformed. I've been reborn and regenerated, Amen. and I'm a free man. Praise God. And it doesn't matter. Hear this well. Please hear this well. It doesn't matter what you think of me. Because I've got Jesus, and that's all that matters. So for the first time back in February-ish, what God thought of you mattered more than what anybody thought of you. Exactly. That's probably the point of conversion, (laughs) to be frank with you. You're right. Yeah. And so glad God just had you reveal that. Like, hey, Kevin, this is probably what happened. And So I think we went over, Jill and I went over one night, and we were expecting to kind of get an update from you about your story, you know. And you said, "Uh, I want to get baptized. I'm like, you want to walk me through this, Kevin? <laughs> you know? And that's when they kind of shared with us, Todd, I think God's genuinely saved me for the first Like, I'm born again now. So today you want to get baptized, don't you? Yes, I do. For the first time since you've been saved. Yes. Yes. Isn't that something to rejoice in, church? Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. Now watch this. This is how this works. This is so this has a fits with Scripture is, God has performed a spiritual circumcision on Kevin's heart, cutting away the deadness and bringing a heart of flesh of living life to him, right? And so baptism is the sign of God's internal work in him. That's what we're going to do this morning. Same thing is true for Andrew. Um, Brandon, I'm looking for Brandon, so I don't know if he got in. Okay, there you are. And there's uh, Christina. And there's one more that name just slips me. Forgive me if that's you. I don't mean to be impersonal. We're going to show that God has cut away their old dead heart, given them a heart of flesh, of, of life. Before we do that, Kevin, share this real quickly. What would you say to men and women here? And I know this room is filled with folks, probably just like you, who are pretending and sure they can have that one talk with God to convince him to let them in. And they're holding on to their sin and not Christ. There's, they see that wall. What would you guys say to them? Well, as you've heard, I tried to manage my life, my whole life, and manage my sin. And it got the best of me. It ruined me. And uh, there's consequences to that. It's crushed my wife and ruined a lot of her hopes and dreams. And it's crushed my kids. And there's consequences. And you're going to have to pay. You know, I always hear 
uh, preachers are good at this. You know, you can't hide from God. You'll be found out. Your sin will find you out. And I thought I was going to be the exception. I thought, ain't nobody going to hear about this. And, you know, this is God's story, Mm. not mine. Amen. It's God's story. And if we don't tell God's story, if we hold that sin to ourselves, we've wasted a sin. And God doesn't waste sins. We're the ones that waste sins. Don't waste your sin. God's got a purpose in it. And he wants others to come to Christ. Kathleen, my wife, you my wife's got a better answer. <laughs> <laughs> I would tell anyone who's living a life of pretense that they should examine their hearts and ask God to show them if they belong to him. Anytime I care more about what people think of me than what God thinks of me, I've taken God off the throne of my life and am living in idolatry. Satan loves to convince people that they have what they need, which is usually works-based, so they can justify continuing in their sin. Whatever you feed in your life is what will grow. If you feed your spirit with God's word and time with him and fellowship with God's people, it will grow. The battlefield is your mind. And if you're spending most of your time thinking about things of this world, then you are, then you are feeding the flesh, and that's what will be in control of you. It comes down to who do you trust. Do you trust that what God says in his word is true? And if you give him your whole self, you will have an abundant life of joy and freedom? Or do you trust yourself and hang on to the sin and vices that you can't seem to let go of? We've learned that believing that lie leads to nothing but emptiness and pain. And we've learned that God is able to do miracles and can be trusted to do what he says he's going to do which is save and sanctify anyone who humbles themselves and repents and believes. Amen. That's beautiful.